If you have your Bible, please join me in Nehemiah chapter 1 in the Old Testament. If you don't, the verses that I'm going to read in a moment are going to be on the screen so that you can know this is God's Word. Through the years, as I have pastored, I have certainly studied some books more than others, and Nehemiah is one of those books. I'm always helped by looking again at the birth of Nehemiah's burden. And then what he does with that burden. And God works the same as he ever did. He lays a burden on the heart of an individual. And we as believers then are responsible for honoring God with the burden that he has given us. And I want to study that this morning by reading his prayer. He gives voice to the burden that God gave him when he prays. As I was studying and preparing for this, I came across a story, and I think it sets the scene and teaches us something beautifully. On November 19, 1863, Edward Everett, one of the most brilliant orators of his generation, and he and I don't have a lot in common, as another joke, stood to speak before a vast audience of American citizens. The press had come from around the nation to hear Edward and one other man speak. Edward Everett spoke first. He delivered a one-hour and 57-minute oration. Now, we could have that in common if you stopped laughing at my jokes. Because you're so classy, you won't leave, even if I go an hour and 57, right? Edward Everett spoke for one hour and 57 minutes. He was interrupted periodically by cheering and thunderous applause from his audience. Again, we don't have anything in common. The newspapers the next day praised every word that he said. They printed his speech with front page prominence. Then it was time for the second speaker. The second speaker stood up, adjusted his glasses, and proceeded to speak for Two minutes, and then he sat down. A member of the Philadelphia Press Corps, as he was working his way back to his seat, said to him, is that all? He replied, that's all. 150 years later, none of us that are here remember or know one word of Edward Everett's two-hour speech, but most of us know something of the two-minute speech, which began like this, four score and seven years ago, our forefathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. We know President Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. The following week, Abraham Lincoln received a note from Edward Everett that read this, I wish that I could flatter myself to have come as near to the central idea of the occasion in two hours as you did in two minutes. And that's fact. It doesn't take two hours for us to find the central idea of the situation. And what we're going to learn this morning as we read the prayer of Nehemiah is this. You can pray it in less than two minutes. It's not a matter of laborious effort in prayer, but what we are going to learn this morning is it is a matter of who is praying. I think every one of us desires to get God's attention, to have the ear of God. And Nehemiah will help us to determine 
How to get that done? I want to begin reading in verse 5. We're going to read his prayer. How do I get God's attention? Now, Nehemiah is praying and said, I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven, the great and terrible God that keepeth covenant and mercy for them that love him and observe his commandments. Let thine ear now be attentive. I want your attention and thine eyes open that thou mayest hear the prayer of thy servant, which I pray before thee now day and night for the children of Israel, thy servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against thee. Both I and my father's house have sinned. We have dealt very corruptly against thee and have not kept the commandments nor the statutes nor the judgments which thou commandest thy servant Moses. Remember, I beseech thee, the word that thou commandest thy servant Moses, saying, if ye transgress, I will scatter you abroad among the nations. But if ye turn unto me and keep my commandments and do them, Though there were of you cast out unto the uttermost part of heaven, yet will I gather them from thence, and will bring them unto the place that I have chosen to set my name there. Now, these are thy servants and thy people, whom thou hast redeemed by thy great power and by thy strong hand. O Lord, I beseech thee, let now thine ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant and to the prayer of thy servants who desire to fear thy name and prosper, I pray thee, thy servant this day and grant him mercy in the sight of this man for I was the king's cupbearer and in essence, amen. Nehemiah has just prayed a nation-altering prayer in verses five to 11. Nehemiah's prayer is giving voice to the burden that God gave him. And the result of this prayer will be that the city of Jerusalem is restored and the walls are rebuilt. It is stunning that an entire kingdom is changed by this very short prayer for strength. Strength is something that all of us need daily. Strength for the big events, Strength for the daily grind, strength for the mundane, strength for the exciting, strength for the hour and for the moment. But how do I pray for strength and expect that God will hear me? Twice in his prayer, he asked God to pay attention and God paid attention. Why did God hear the prayer of Nehemiah? I believe perhaps many words could describe the prayer of Nehemiah. But none more important than the word humble. Humility. Humility. Constantly, over and again, arises to the top in effective praying. Nehemiah did not get God's attention because he said the right words in the right way. Or because he went to the right place to pray and prayed for long enough. Nehemiah got God's attention because of who Nehemiah was. In effect, God accepted Nehemiah's prayer because God accepted Nehemiah. James said it this way. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. We know immediately it requires a righteous man to be praying fervently and it will avail much. It will accomplish much. Answered prayer is the natural outflow of our spiritual life. And humility is key if we are ever going to get God's attention. 
Now, this isn't earth-shattering news. All throughout the scripture, the Bible teaches us over and again, this is reality. In James chapter four and verse six, here's what we read. But he giveth more grace. Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. In Job twenty-two twenty-nine, we read this. When men are cast down, then thou shalt say, there is lifting up. And he shall save the humble person. The psalmist tells us directly in Psalm 138.6, Though the Lord be high, yet hath he respect unto the lowly, but the proud he knoweth afar off. In Proverbs we read, Surely he scorneth the scorners, but he giveth grace unto the lowly. Jesus himself taught us in Matthew 23.12, Whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased, and he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. Jesus even backed this with a story recorded for us in Luke chapter 18 of the Pharisee and the publican. Jesus speaking and he said this, two men went up into the temple to pray. The one a Pharisee and the other a publican. A publican is a sinner. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all I possess. And the publican, standing afar off, would not lift up so much his eyes unto the heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus sums the story up by saying, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbles himself shall be exalted. That's what Jesus said. Don't expect to ever gain God's attention with a proud heart. Humbling ourselves is a painful proposition. I get humbled often. I believe That there are some individuals that have the spiritual gift at salvation. The Bible teaches us we have the charis. We have a gift that is given to us. And we administer that gift within the body of Christ. And I have learned in 18 years of pastoring, though I cannot find this on any biblical list, some people are gifted in humbling the pastor. It's their gift. They're good at telling you you're bad at your job. It's their gift. I don't like... To be humbled. I was on family vacation several years ago. And family vacation is a happy time. It's a good time. It is an escape where you are away from all of the pressure of life and you shower love on one another and you encourage each other and you sleep in and you eat bad and you do what you want. And on this particular family vacation at the resort we were staying at, there was a really nice putt-putt course, and we had little kids, and we could play all the putt-putt that we wanted to play. And I'm a competitive person. My wife is a competitive person. I have seen many marriages, and I think, you know, I've seen a lot of guys marry unathletic girls, but I married a 5-foot, 10-inch volleyball player. She's athletic 
and competitive. When we were dating, we would play one-on-one basketball. We would play... Many times we almost broke up over stupid sports stuff. I mean, one point, and that's it. Our marriage has been forged in fire because of sports and competition. On this particular vacation, we were playing putt-putt, and I want to win. Because I do, on very rare occasion... I don't know what you think of pastors. We don't play all that, golf, all that much golf, but I do play on occasion, and I think I should go out here, and I should, I should destroy my wife in front of my children at putt-putt golf. And then we start playing, and she starts hitting putts, and I think to myself, I hate my life. And I'll say things like by the second hole, well, it's not real golf. If this was real golf, you'd have to swing a club, and you cannot do that. The kids start getting nervous and quiet. Then the five or six holes in, I'll say stuff like, if I didn't have this dumb rubber hot pink putter, I guarantee you I'd be beating you. And then this isn't even made up. We played one hole where she putted it into running water. The running water took it down, and it crossed over a grate, and it went into the hole, and I thought, I'm not allowed to divorce you because of the church and the word of God and stuff, but we're close. That was luck. This is not skill. To be destroyed by your wife in front of your children is not biblical. It's not right. It's not fair. I literally had to walk my little blue ball and hot pink putter back to the little stand, just dragging it behind me because I had been beaten by my wife. Say, why tell that story publicly? I just hope that God hears my prayers. (laughs) I get rewarded in heaven for being honest or something. Humbling ourselves is not an easy endeavor. It's hard. None of us like to acknowledge that within us there is some failure. Let me just say this to you, and I believe this with all of my heart. We have two options. Either we can acknowledge our own failure and sin and confess it, thus humbling ourselves, or we can maintain our lives of sin and God in a punitive fashion can humble us. It's better to humble ourselves. By the time I get to verse four, I'm listening and Nehemiah says this, and it came to pass when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Nehemiah teaches us how to humbly pray for strength. And the first thing I note is this, his heart was broken. His heart was broken, sincerely broken, genuinely broken. I don't mean that his feelings were hurt, I mean that his heart was broken. Psalm 34, 18 teaches us this, the Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart. David is confessing in the 51st Psalm his terrible sin with Bathsheba. And here's what he prays in verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, thou wilt not despise. God knows our hearts. If our hearts are not broken over sin, God will not hear our prayers when we pray. I'll work back to that in a moment, but that's where Nehemiah began. The evidence of Nehemiah's broken heart is is found if we'll just listen to him pray in verse 6. Let 
thine ear now be attentive. I want your attention. That's what he's saying. God, please pay attention to me. Have your eyes open. Hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before thee now day and night for the children of Israel thy sins. And get this. And confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against thee. Both I and my father's house have sinned. Broken, humble hearts lead to self-awareness and reject self-righteousness. His heart was broken for sin, his own sin and others and the consequences of it. Nehemiah, are you sad because the walls of Jerusalem are broken down? Yes. My homeland is in ruin. The testimony of God who gave us that place is ruined. But the ruination is not what is breaking my heart. My heart is broken for the sin that brought about the ruination of the nation of my birth, my heritage, and all those that I care about. It's an honest facing of his own guilt. In verse 7, he says, We have dealt very corruptly against thee, and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the judgments, which thou commandest thy servant Moses. There's no self-righteousness there. He doesn't say, Lord, I'm thinking of all those terrible sinners back there in Jerusalem. Be gracious to them because they have fallen into wrong actions. No, he puts himself into the picture. I have contributed to this problem. There are things that I did or did not do that have made this possible. I confess before you the sins of me, myself, and my father's house. No attempt to excuse No attempt to blame others for this, a simple acknowledgement of wrong. One wrote this, it has always been true of the people of God that any degree of self-justification will cancel out recovery. Any degree of self-justification cancels out recovery. Nehemiah was the king's cupbearer. Nehemiah hadn't been alive long enough to be guilty of all the sins, but Nehemiah was aware that he himself had sinned. So many of us are ineffective prayers because we are terrible confessors. We look at situations that exist within our family and we find ways to blame individuals or circumstances and far too infrequently acknowledge it's sin in me. We're here because I'm faulty. We're here because I sin. I don't have God's attention because there is sin in my heart. If we try to excuse ourselves for what's wrong in our lives, we block our own recovery. Just admit it. Declare it. Take ownership of it. True humility takes ownership of sin and confesses it with a broken heart. Psalm 34, 15, the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous and his ears are open unto their cry. A few verses later, Psalm 34, the righteous cry and the Lord heareth and delivereth them out of all their troubles. I referenced earlier the effectual prayers of a righteous man availeth much. This tricks our minds because we believe that righteous people are elite level Christians and they're not. When the Bible speaks of a righteous individual, he is speaking of our standing before God. When I confess my sins 
and I place my faith for salvation in the finished work and shed blood of Jesus Christ, my sins are washed away, and I am robed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. My standing before God is righteous. But I sin. Frequently, I sin. And when I do not confess my sin, my fellowship with my heavenly Father is ruptured. Not my relationship, he is my heavenly father, but my intimate communion and fellowship with him is ruptured by that sin, the presence of it. And if I will confess that sin, he is faithful and just to forgive me of that sin and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. If I confess my sin, the relationship has always been there. The fellowship is restored. I am righteous. I'm not perfect, but I can pray. But there are two groups of people who pray and God doesn't hear them. Sinners, God does not hear them. You say, now hold on a second, pastor. God has to hear sinners. John 9, 31 says this. Now, we know that God heareth not sinners. But if any man be a worshiper of God, get this clause, and doeth his will, him he heareth. So I can say to you, according to Scripture, the first prayer of an unbeliever that God listens to is the prayer of repentance and their request for personal salvation through Jesus Christ alone. He hears the penitent prayer, the broken heart surrender, the humble prayer. Blessed are the poor in spirit. He hears that prayer. But there's a second group of people, and I don't think the people that are here right now listening to me largely are in that first group. I think most of us are in the second group. He does not hear the prayer of the disobedient believer. He does not hear the prayer of the disobedient believer. If any man be a worshiper of God and doeth his will, him he heareth. David said this in Psalm 66, 18, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Does that mean you cannot pray unless your heart is sinless, flawlessly perfect? No, if that were the case, none of us could ever pray. But the Hebrew word regard means to cherish or to defend. If I cherish and I defend sin in my heart, God won't hear me. You can go ahead and pray, but God is not listening. I've heard all my life, I grew up in church. I've heard all of my life what we lack is we lack prayer. We need more people praying. What I understand the more that I study prayer is we need people to live lives worthy of God hearing. Because I happen to think there are a lot of people offering up prayers that aren't being heard. And we don't need to just encourage people to just say more stuff. We need to exhort people to live lives that are righteous, to openly confess and acknowledge and take ownership of our sins rather than cherishing and defending it and justifying ourselves. Thus, God not listening to us. There are people here who perhaps have prayed for decades to no avail. Because in their heart, they're controlled and dominated by sin. And I don't mean big, obnoxious sins that we would all think of. I mean the secret, hidden things of the heart. 
You can go ahead and pray, God's not listening. Peter's even more specific when he writes this. It's startling. 1 Peter 3, 7. Ye husbands, speaking of wives, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. That is direct communication. That to married men, your relationship with your wife is either an obstacle or an aid to your prayer life. One of the best ways to get God's attention as a married guy is to give your wife yours. It is startling and it is fascinating to think that our fellowship on earth affects our fellowship in heaven. There are people who are here right now who do not have the innate capacity because of their sin-cursed nature to discern God's will, to please God by adhering to his way. They desire and ask for the favor of God, but they are not being heard because in their hearts is sin. And it is not until we humble ourselves and confess our sins before God that we can arrive at the place where God will, in effect, pay attention to us. Jesus teaching in Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. Just before he teaches us the model prayer, he says, If thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath ought against thee, Leave there thy gift before the altar and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother and then come and offer thy gift. I say that we need to confess our sins. We don't need more people offering up vain repetition and words. We need revival where people confess sins in their hearts and are heard by God. Humble people are grieved by that reality and are heard Proud people press on and meet silence. Not only was his heart broken, but he willingly denied himself. During this time, the Bible tells us Nehemiah didn't eat. Because of his intense grief, he was fasting. He was praying and he was fasting out of a deep concern for Israel. I want to be very careful to say this. He fasted not to punish himself. Nor did he fast to get God's attention as an ascetic act, but as an outward revelation of his inward heart's condition. If your heart is not in it, you're just going hungry, you're not fasting. One commentator of old wrote this, The true spirit of fasting lies in inward sorrow for sin, and a hearty renunciation of it in every form. Outward mortifications are of no value except as they express the inward humiliation of the soul before God. When men cleave to their wicked practices and seek to cover them under the cloak of outward rites and penances, they provoke the wrath of him who cannot be deceived and will not be mocked. We say things like, be not, God says, be not deceived, I will not be mocked. I know what sin is. And yet we have the audacity with unconfessed or defended sin in our hearts, justifying ourselves to go before God and ask for things, thinking we might fool him or deceive him. He knows our hearts. Prayer that is effective is an outward revelation of the inward condition. Nehemiah teaches us that. Even in verse 6, 
It shows us how ceaselessly and earnestly and desperately he prayed day and night. His heart was broken. He denied himself. And he prayed believing. In verse 5 we read this. I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven, the great and terrible God. Every time I read that in study, I think of the Wizard of Oz. Does anybody else? The great and terrible God. It's what he says. He's praying. Now, this is, this is hundreds of years before Jesus will pray and teach us the model prayer. But Jesus said, pray this way. This is how you pray. Our Father which art in heaven, your transcendent, hallowed be thy name. Listen now to Nehemiah, who knew nothing of the model prayer, but is giving voice to an inner burden. He's revealing his awareness and his thoughts of God by what he says. And he says, O Lord God of heaven, the great and terrible God. In effect, you reign over all creation. You rule over all there is. Certainly you can handle this. One pastor said, prayer doesn't begin with the believer going into the presence of God and saying, Lord, here I am, but instead saying, oh, great sovereign Lord, there you are. Prayer is not the communication of our will to God, but the surrender of our will to God. And as we will see throughout the book of Nehemiah and his life, good praying, good praying is not that we have our way with God, but that he has his way with us. That's what Jesus taught us explicitly. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. We suffer from too low a view of God. And we're prone to become nonchalant about the Father in heaven. Our lack of reverence for God is demonstrated in how we pray or that we do not pray. And it does us good to remember who we're talking to. Before telling God how big your problem is and how big my problem is, we should tell God and remind ourselves how big he is. And again, this is not just intentionally trying to teach you to say the right things. This is attempting to break our hearts so that they align with God's will and we then pray an outward revelation of our inward condition and we have God's attention. In fact, it's not until verse 11 that he even makes his request when he says to him, please prosper me, grant me mercy. And he calls himself, I'm only your servant. And I want you to note this because it's interesting to me. The last thing that Nehemiah prayed was his request. And in his request, Nehemiah is personally volunteering to become a part of God's solution for the problem in Jerusalem. Two words, pray and. Pray and be willing to be a part of the solution for that which you are praying about. Pray and work. Pray and serve. Eleven times in this book, Nehemiah pleads for the attention of God. Every time it is from a broken and passionate heart. Three times in the last chapter of Nehemiah alone, Nehemiah cries out, Remember me, O my God. He's desperate to have God's attention. Of course God remembers him. Of course God sees. But the Bible teaches us there's a special blessing 
For those who really want to know God, we read it in the 119th Psalm, blessed are they that keep his testimonies and that seek him with the whole heart. The fact is, the majority of us aren't seeking with the whole heart. The majority of us are not dependent on God as we should be. And the more that I study prayer, I reiterate, the less I think we just need more people praying. There's a dearth of prayer. There's a dearth of righteousness which makes for effective prayer. I don't think we lack for people who are willing to offer up a prayer here and there. I just think we lack the righteous lives in order to get God's attention to have our prayers heard. All of us have a situation or two that dominate our thoughts. It could be a marital relationship. It could be a health thing. I don't mean to denigrate physical needs. Certainly give us this day our daily bread dignifies our personal needs. It's good to pray about physical things. Maybe it's a marriage situation. Maybe it's a kid situation. Maybe it's a health thing. Maybe it's a financial thing. I don't know what it is. But far too infrequently, we forget that we we remember that God is big enough to handle everything. We also fail to accept the responsibility. And and instead of self-righteously justifying what's going on, we need some self-awareness and some acknowledgement that we're part of the problem. And that's painful. Humbling ourselves is not an easy endeavor. It is a painful thing. But what Nehemiah is teaching us here is he could have pointed fingers. He wasn't in Jerusalem. He was the king's cupbearer. But he said, I know I'm a part of this. I sin too. God hears those who have a broken heart. Who put it into work and pray, believing that God can. I would say to you, I don't know that your problem is that you're not praying enough. Your problem is more than likely your righteousness, your lack of confession. There's people here who will lead Bible studies, who will pray 10 times a day for something, completely unaware of the fact that they might as well be leaving a memo on their cell phone because it's just not being heard. Until we confess and live right, God's not listening. Thanks for listening this week to the Graceway Baptist Church podcast. For more information about our church and our ministries, head on over to our website at gracewaycharlotte.org. We are a church located in South Charlotte. We are growing and our ministries are doing big things for Christ. If you're looking for a way to get plugged into what we're doing, email us at info at gracewaycharlotte.org. Also, stay in the loop with everything happening by following us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle is Graceway Charlotte. Thanks again for listening to the Graceway Charlotte podcast. We'll see you next week.